Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. ...to Genesis chapter 10. Yes, we are back in the book of Genesis. We've been out of it for a while, but we are back. And before we dive into our text this morning... I want us to play a little game. It's a game that you're going to have to be a guessing game. So what's going to happen here in a few moments is I'm going to, uh, we're going to have some, some buildings or some famous um, feats of architecture, famous engineering feats, things that you would recognize. They're going to flash up here on the screen, and you're going to have to guess, and you can yell out. This is audience participation. You can yell out, not too loud. Don't, don't get too unruly. Yell out what this represents. So we're going to put these up here. Let's put the first one up here and you guys tell me what it is. Stonehenge. Okay, very good. You guys know your geography. Stonehenge. Let's put the second one up there. The pyramids. All right, you guys are doing really good. Let's put the next one up there. The Colosseum in Rome lit up in the evening. The next one's kind of hard, but some of you may have been to this. Palace of Versailles, or if you're in Kentucky, it's called Versailles. I went to a, there's a town called Versailles in, in Kentucky. The next one's pretty easy. Let's put the next one up. The Eiffel Tower, okay. Let's put the next one up. The Taj Mahal, considered to be one of the most beautiful buildings in all the world in India. And let's put the last one up. Some of you may have been there. It's the Forbidden City in China. Okay, these are man-made buildings that you guys recognize that represent the pinnacle, the height of engineering, the height of beauty. These are monuments that everybody around our world knows. Now, I want to show you the next one. Anybody know what this next one is? That's called the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. It is the tallest man-made structure in the world, 2,722 feet the tallest skyscraper, the tallest man-made building in the world. If you've seen Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol with Tom Cruise, where he's outside scaling that building with those suction gloves, it made me scared just to watch it because I'm afraid of heights. But that is the tallest building in the world. Now, why do I draw your attention to very tall buildings and very famous buildings that we would all recognize throughout our world? Why do I draw your attention to that this morning? Because we come to that very famous passage in Genesis with the Tower of Babel. The building of the Tower of Babel. But before we get to the Tower of Babel, what I want us to see are some of the implications leading up to what that represents. Now, we've been out of Genesis for a while. We took a break before Christmas and we've had some some things in between. And so I need to do a little bit of a review this morning. Just a short review, okay? Genesis chapter 1. God creates the heavens and the earth in his divine sovereignty, and he places Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And if you remember, Adam and Eve uh, rebelled against God. They ate the forbidden fruit. They brought sin and shame and death and corruption into the world. And so every single person from here on out has been born under sin. And then we've got that... um, 
promise that comes. So turn with me real quick back to Genesis 3.15. We need to always go back to Genesis 3.15 because it's the foundational verse for the rest of Genesis. Genesis 3.15, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity or warfare between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the very first announcement of the gospel in the Bible and it's a promise that God is going to bring about the Messiah through the seed of a woman, through this godly lineage. And then what happens next on the scene, it kind of surprises us because Cain and Abel are born and Cain kills Abel and we think that the seed, the lineage, the offspring has been snuffed out. But then Seth comes along and then through Seth comes Noah. And if you remember, Noah was a godly man. Noah was a righteous man. Noah built the ark. Noah walked in integrity. Yes, he had that one moment of lapse where he got drunk and lay naked in his tent. But for the most part, Noah was a godly man. And you remember the command that God gave to Noah. After they got out of the ark, God said, be fruitful, multiply, spread out over the earth, go to the ends of the earth, multiply. And he has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And what's the first thing that Noah does when he gets off the ark? Look at Genesis 8.20. What's the first thing that Noah does when he gets off the ark? We looked at this back in December. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Noah is famous for building two things. He built an ark in obedience, and he built an altar in worship. Obedience and worship. That's what Noah is known for. So here's the key question for this morning. It's the question that we're going to keep coming back to over and over again, and it's simply this. Upon what are you building your life? What are you building your life upon? What's the foundation of your life? What are you investing in? What types of things are you building your life upon? Because really, Genesis chapter 10 and 11, where we end up this morning, it's really about building. What kind of life are you building? It's a tale of two cities, a tale of two types of buildings. What are you building your life upon? So here's the main idea this morning from our text. From Genesis chapters 10 and 11, here's the main idea. It's simply this. God desires for us to build our lives upon worship and obedience instead of building our lives upon pride and independence. You see, you've got two ways to build. You can build your life upon worship and obedience, or you can build your life upon pride and independence. And we see this graphically illustrated in Genesis 10 and 11. Because, you see, we live in a culture today that values building their lives upon pride, ingenuity, self-sufficiency, arrogance, rebellion. Nobody in our culture wants to submit to a holy God who has sovereign rights over their lives to rule and reign over them as king of kings. As we said earlier, God's kingdom is unshakable. So again, I'm going to ask you, upon what are you building your life? What's the foundation for your life? Is it worship 
and obedience? Or is it pride and independence? Genesis chapters 10 and 11 are meant to be read together. You cannot separate them out. They're meant to be read together. They're like a little mini-drama, two-part series, if you will. And one thing you will notice in Genesis 10 and 11 is that chronologically they're out of order. Actually, in time and in history, Genesis chapter 11 comes first. And then Genesis chapter 10 comes next. But Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has arranged these to where chapter 11 is almost like a theological flashback that shows us why chapter 10 happens. So they're really out of order chronologically, but for the sake of the inspired text, Moses has put them in the order that the Holy Spirit wanted him to put them in. So we're going to look at these two chapters together. So let's look at Genesis chapter 10, verse 1. Genesis chapter 10, verse 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. And if you keep reading, you come across a bunch of crazy names that I can't pronounce. And we're not going to read a lot of these names because it's it's a genealogy, it's a table of nations. I'm not going to read all the names here, but what I want to show you is that what we find out here is that Noah's sons and Noah's descendants spread. They spread out to the utter ends of the earth. They have their own languages. They have their own ethnicities. They they divide up into their clans, into their nations. You've got, really what you've got in chapter 10 is how the, the nations got to where they are in the world today. And God is sovereign in this process. Have you ever thought about that? Why do we have a lot of different languages, a lot of different ethnicities, and why have people migrated to the places that they've migrated throughout the world? Why is the world the way it is with ethnicities and cultures and languages? Chapter 10 explains that. And God is sovereign over this. Deuteronomy 32.8 says this, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance... When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. It says right there, this is not a random process. God fixed the borders. God divided up the peoples. God placed people where he sovereignly wanted them to end up. And so that's why today we have different ethnicities, different cultures, different languages, different people groups, all spread out throughout the, throughout the, the, the globe. Paul says in Acts seventeen twenty six when he's preaching on Mars Hill, He says, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place. God determined where people would dwell, their boundaries. God divided up mankind according to their ethnicities. God scattered them. God sent them throughout the ends of the earth. Now, chapter 10 is called the table of nations. And if you count them up, you've got 70 nations. 70 nations. Seven is an important number in the Bible. Ten is an important number in the Bible. You also you find some 14s in there, but totally it's 70. It's a picture of completeness. A picture of God sovereignly moving this, this process to its ultimate end, and we've got completeness. But there's something interesting when you look at Genesis chapter 10. With all of these nations, with all these ethnicities, with all these clans, there's one missing from Genesis chapter 10. There's one nation that's not listed, Israel. 
Now we're going to find out that that comes a little bit later, but God has, has a special plan for the nation of Israel, but right here he's showing how he's sovereign over the Gentile nations. So Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And interestingly, in Genesis chapter 10, Japheth is mentioned first. And so what do we find out about the sons of Japheth? Here's what we find out. Without getting into all the intricate details, let me just give you the bottom line. Japheth shows the origins of the Indo-European peoples who inhabited India and then migrated northwest and settled in Europe. From Japheth come those that were to India, and then they migrated. And so when you think about those that came from Japheth, you've got the Germanic peoples, the Italian peoples, the Russian people, the Scandinavian people, the Celts in Britain and in Scotland and Ireland. You've got basically this whole migration from India up until Russia and Europe. And so the, the rest of the chapter doesn't really focus much upon the sons of Japheth because in Israel's history, they really didn't deal with those people. Shem and Ham are the ones they dealt with. So, so we really just spend a little bit of time on that. But secondly, we find out Ham's descendants. This starts in verse 6. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. What we find out from Ham's descendants is they represent the four bitter enemies of Israel that we will see in the rest of the Old Testament. From Ham come Egypt. It's a problem for Israel, right? Canaan. That's a problem for Israel, the Canaanites. The Assyrians, problem for Israel. The northern kingdom goes into exile. And Babylon, the southern kingdom, goes into exile. The four major enemies. But even within this chapter, and especially this treatment on Ham, we're introduced to a character named Nimrod. Now, you guys thought Nimrod was just what we call people that are acting stupid. You little Nimrod. And if you ever thought about that, who's Nimrod? Well, let's find out who Nimrod is, okay? So let's look at Genesis chapter 10. Let's look at verses 8 through 11. And Nimrod's important. You may just kind of skip over this and say, what are all these weird names? But here's Nimrod. Verse 8. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Arek, Akkad, and Kelnah, and the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kalah, and resin between Nineveh and Kalah. That is the great city. Now, what do we find out about Nimrod? Nimrod is a picture of a man who builds his life on pride and independence, as opposed to worship and obedience. Nimrod's name, the name Nimrod, means we shall rebel. His name means we're going to rebel against God. We're going to disobey God. That's what Nimrod means. So even his name is ominous. And what does he build? Did you catch it? Nimrod is the builder of the two cities that are going to stand opposed to God's people. He builds Babylon and Nineveh. Nimrod is the one that starts these two cities, Nineveh and Babylon, the two archenemy cities of Israel in their history. And as he builds these cities, does he rely upon God's leadership? Does he rely upon the glory of God? Does he do things for the glory of God? No, what does it say? 
He's a mighty hunter. The word hunter there does not mean that he hunted animals. It means that he hunted people. He built these cities on conquest, on arrogance, on pride, on rebellion, on military might. Instead of spreading out across the earth and cultivating and obeying God, he's a mighty man. It says three times there, a mighty man. This mighty man, in his own pride and strength, builds the two cities that are going to be causing major problems for Israel throughout the rest of the Old Testament. What do we know about Assyria, Nineveh? Well, Assyria was the nation that captures the northern kingdom of Israel and takes them off into oblivion. We never hear about them again. Babylon is the kingdom that comes into the southern kingdom and takes them off for 70 years of exile. So these cities, Babylon and Nineveh, are built upon pride, aggression, and might. So what's Nimrod known for building? Nimrod builds these cities in pride and arrogance. But Noah, Noah builds an ark in obedience, and Noah builds an altar in worship. There's something else that you want to notice. You may not have caught this, but look at verse 10. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. It's the very first time the word kingdom shows up in the entire Bible. And it's not God's kingdom. It's man's kingdom. Nimrod is building his kingdom. What does Jesus say in Matthew 6.33? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. You see, there's a huge difference between building your own kingdom and seeking the kingdom of God. So I'm going to ask the question again. Upon what are you building your life? Are you building your life upon the kingdom of God, the unshakable kingdom, God's righteousness? Are you seeking first the kingdom of God, or are you building your own kingdom? Are you building your own domain? Are you making a name for yourself? Are you saying, I'm going to build in rebellion. I'm going to, I'm going to do what I want to do because it's all about my kingdom. Do you remember the other person that first built cities in the Bible back in Genesis 4? Cain. Cain was the father of cities. So Nimrod is in the lineage of Cain. Nimrod is the ungodly seed. Nimrod is the builder of cities. And from Ham come the four nations that are going to cause Israel major trouble. Egypt, Canaan, Assyria, and Babylon, with Nimrod, the mighty hunter, building Babylon and Nineveh. He's this tyrannical warrior that conquers by might in rebellion. Nimrod's name, we shall rebel. Okay, who's Noah's third son? Shem. Shem's descendants are the Semitic people that lived around the area of the Middle East, but again, we don't see the Israelites yet. From Shem come a lot of those Middle Eastern nations. But we're not going to see Israel yet because here's what happens. Pick up in verse 25. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. 
Eber has two sons, Joktan and Peleg. Now, in the rest of chapter 10, we follow the lineage of Joktan. And we find that Joktan, his lineage is from Shem, but it does not end in who we think it ends. We have to go to chapter 11 to find out that through Peleg's lineage comes Abraham. So even among Shem, there's a division between Peleg and Joktan. Peleg's name means divided. God divided the line of Shem, and eventually it's a foreshadowing of God dividing their languages, as we'll see here in just a moment. But through Peleg comes eventually Abraham. So we're not to Israel yet. In this table of nations, we've got 70 of them, and we find out that God is sovereign over this process of people going and and developing their languages and their ethnicities. And look at verse 32. Verse 32 is kind of a summary statement. (coughs) These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies and their nations, and from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. They spread abroad. These 70 nations spread abroad. One nation's not listed yet, that's Israel, because it's going to get a center attention. And so we get to the end of chapter 10, and we have to ask ourselves the question, well, why did they spread? What moved them to spread? How did God sovereignly make sure that they spread? And how did these clans and these different languages, how did it all happen? Well, that's where we come to chapter 11. Now, chapter 11, again, is chronologically out of order. Chapter 11 is a theological flashback in time that shows us why chapter 10 happened. So again, it's it's chronologically out of order, but theologically, Moses puts it in there to draw our attention to it. So let's pick up in chapter 11, and let's find out about what they're building. Again, the whole message this morning is upon what are you building your life. Nimrod built upon pride, arrogance, rebellion. Let's keep going through the text. Let's pick up in chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are only one people and they all have one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. So let's look at three major responses from the people in the building of the Tower of Babel. If Nimrod is a picture of building Babylon and building Assyria and building upon pride and aggression, what are three things that these people are building upon? What do we see? Well, here's the first thing we see. We see a determined resolve to rebel against God's gracious boundaries. 
Now, I've chosen my wording very carefully. It was a determined resolve. Now, you may ask, why do I use the terminology determined resolve? If you go back to the original language and you look in the Hebrew text, when it says, come, let us build, come, let us make a name for ourselves, it's in a very rare form in the Hebrew language that really means we are rebelliously, willfully doing this. We have a determination to obstinately do this. This isn't haphazard. This isn't just casual. This is we've got a settled resolve to rebel against God. And the first thing they do here is they rebel against God's gracious boundaries. What was God's gracious boundary, if you will? What did God say? Be fruitful and what? Fill the earth. That's a gracious boundary, isn't it? Because it's really no boundary at all. It's limitless, people. Go into the earth and fill the earth. Go to the ends of the earth. But what do they do? They settle on this plain of Shinar. The plain of Shinar, they all settled there. Now, the plain of Shinar is going to be the future site of Babylon. The plain of Shinar, if you remember in the book of Daniel, is where Nebuchadnezzar erected the gold statue and told everyone to bow down on the plain of Shinar. The plain of Shinar is where in chapter 10, which is actually in the future, Nimrod's going to go back and build Babylon. They settle in one place now why wouldn't they want to spread across the globe why did they want to just settle in one place the text doesn't tell us we really don't know maybe it was fear i fear the unknown i fear what's out there their safety in numbers let's just hunker down and settle here Maybe they didn't want to be wanderers or nomads. Maybe they didn't want to trust God for the future. Maybe they thought if we just stay here together, we can trust in ourselves and not have to depend upon God. Maybe there was a fear of of branching out. And let me say that's a legitimate fear, isn't it? When God calls us to branch out, when God calls us to obey, when God calls us to do something that may seem risky, the first thought is, that's scary, I want to just stay where I'm at. I want to be comfortable. I want to just hunker down with people I know. And God may be saying, no, I'm leading you out in a step of faith so that you can trust in me. Don't fear, follow me. That's what Jesus says when he says, follow me. We we follow him, we branch out, we we follow his leading. What marked Abraham? We're going to find this out in a few weeks. Does Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, do they ever settle down? No. No. They're wanderers. They go from tent to tent to place to place to this country to that country. They never put down roots. They're wanderers because they're trusting God every step of the way as to where they're going to go. And the writer of Hebrews tells us why Abraham didn't put down roots. Hebrews 11, 9 through 10, speaking of Abraham by faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham was looking forward to heaven. That's why he didn't put down roots here on earth. He knew his ultimate home was in heaven. What's the second thing we see here about the Tower of Babel? They had a determined resolve to reach heaven with man-made methods. This is man-made religion at its finest. If we could just 
build a tower to get to the portal of heaven, then we can have intimate access with God or the gods. But it's this whole idea that us and our power and our ingenuity and our self-sufficiency can somehow get ourselves up to God so that God can accept us. If we could just get ourselves to God, God will accept us. It's man-made religion. It's this whole idea that I can get to God on my own. I can get to God in my own strength. I can get to God in my own power. I can get to God in my own self-works. This is what man-made religion says. Listen to some of these statements. These are statements that man-made religion makes. I went to church all my life. I help the poor. I was a good person. I was a defender of family values, and I voted for morality. I have a fish on the back of my car. That's got to let me into heaven. I was baptized. I really try not to hurt anyone. I call the shots in my life. I'm in charge of my life. I don't need Jesus. Jesus is just a crutch for people that are weak. I can handle life on my own. I, 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 I. Do you get to heaven by saying I? No. See, here's the beauty of the gospel. Do you realize that Christ Jesus in the gospel is so radically different from all other world religions? All other world religions say, what do you have to do to somehow get yourself to God? Let's build this tower to get ourselves to God. What did God do? God left heaven. Jesus came to earth in the form of a man He suffered and died and bled on the cross and rose again and lived the life that we never could and died the death that we all should have. And he came to us so that we'd have a way to the Father. He doesn't require us to somehow try to get to him. He left heaven and came down and became one of us, died for us, rose again for us, so that at the end of the day when you get to heaven, you don't say, I, you say, Jesus. Jesus did it all. He's the one that got me there. Here's the third thing we see. And this is scary because I think when I say this, you're going to think, that's, that's not me. I won't do that. But as I've been meditating this week upon this passage, I think sometimes we can be guilty of this third thing. Here's the third thing, a determined resolve to rob God of his glory and fame. Notice what they say. At the end of verse 4, let us make a name for ourselves. It's about our fame. It's about our name. It's all about me. It's not about God and his glory. It's not about God and his fame. It's not about God and his name. It's how do I make a name for myself? How does everything center around me? Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 115, 1 through 3. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. That should be our prayer every day. Not to us, O Lord. Not to me. I don't want to make a name for me. I don't want to be about me, but to your glory, to your fame, to your name. Again, what are you building upon? What's the foundation of your life? Are you trying to make a name for yourself? And most of us say, well, I'm not trying to be famous. I'm not trying to put myself out there. Most of us here are probably not going to be famous, but how many of us live our lives thinking that it's all about me and making a name for me and my needs and my wants and my kingdom and my agenda and everything's about me and you totally forget about God's glory and his agenda. Isaiah 42.8 says this. 
I am the Lord. That is my name. I do not give my glory to another, nor my praise to carved idols. God's not going to share his glory with anybody else. Now, you don't see this in your English Bibles. But when you study the Hebrew text, you find out that verse 5 is really the apex. It's the, it's the crescendo. It's, the, it's this moment of tension. And it's actually kind of funny. There's this irony to it. Look at verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. The Lord had to come down. This puny little city. It's almost as if God had to put on his magnifying glasses and come down and say, that's it? That's what you guys are trying to do? This is, what, this, is, this is it? God comes down to see what they're doing. He has to come down because it's not even tall. They're trying to create this huge structure to reach up to heaven, and, and God has to come down and look at it. Isaiah 40, 22 through 23. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of earth as emptiness. God is on his throne and he looks down and says, that's all you got? That's it? You see, they were trying to build this huge edifice to themselves, their accomplishment, their pride, making a name to themselves, building this huge tower to get to heaven. And God comes down and says, wow, that's nothing. So here's what he does. He judges them. God confuses and disperses. God comes down and confuses their language. They all had one language, and God says in judgment, now you're going to have different languages. And not only are you going to have different languages, but you're not staying put in the land of Shinar anymore. You're going to spread. That's why you have chapter 10. They spread, and they have all these different languages and all these different ethnicities. It's an act of judgment. It's an act of judgment. What does Babel mean? Why is it called the Tower of Babel? Look there, verse 9. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the earth. Babel means confusion. Confusion. This puny little tower that represented power and might and self-sufficiency and all this attempt to somehow make a name for themselves is now just confusion scattered. It's empty. There's nothing there. They left off building the tower. They just sat. And here's the tragedy. Once you look at this as a flashback, Nimrod knew this. Nimrod knew what happened. Nimrod knew that God had judged them at the Tower of Babel and scattered them. What does Nimrod do instead? He goes back to the very same spot and builds Babylon. That's why his name is We Shall Rebel. Now, just if you think this is the end of the story, I want you to think of Babylon or Babel reversed for a moment. What is Babel? The Tower of Babel, what is it? One nation coming together in one place with one language, all about themselves, and what does God do? God judges them and spreads them out. Do we see another place in the Bible where people come to one place at one time with one language. But instead of being spread out in judgment, they're spread out on mission. Turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles real quickly to Acts chapter 2. 
I want you to see Babylon or Babel reversed. Acts chapter 2 shows Babel reversed. You know the story. It's the day of Pentecost. They're meeting. There came a sound as the rushing wind and tongues of fire came and laid upon each person's head and they began speaking in these languages and, and they were all from different parts of the world and everybody was able to hear their own language. Let's pick up in verse 5 of Acts chapter 2. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Where do those nations come from? Genesis chapter 10. And at the sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. The languages that were confused at Babel are now they're able to hear. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all those who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one in his own native language? Now listen to this. Doesn't it sound a lot like Genesis chapter 10? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretan and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Is Babel reversed? What is Pentecost? Pentecost is the nations gathering in one place at one time and God unifying them back with one language so that they can understand each other. And then after that, he spreads them out, not in judgment this time, but he spreads them out because they've been empowered by the Holy Spirit to be witnesses to the end of the earth. And this time they go back with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. It's Babel reversed. And so God redeems what happens at Babel with confusion and judgment to bring them all back together so they can be empowered by the Holy Spirit to go back to the ends of the earth to share the gospel. That's the Great Commission. So what are you building your life upon? Are you building your life upon the Great Commission of going to all the nations, going to the ends of the earth, going to all the people groups, going to the unreached people groups, going to the unreached, unengaged people groups, going to those tribal areas in India, going to the inner city of Moscow, going into the villages of Nicaragua, going into your own backyard? Are you going to the ends of the earth with the message of the gospel? What are you building your life upon? Now, how does Genesis chapter 11 end so far? Confusion, right? Confusion and chaos. There's confusion, there's chaos, they're spreading out, and we still haven't gotten to Israel yet. Now, there's going to be a new birth. Genesis chapter 12 starts over. Genesis 1 through 11 is part 1 of Genesis. Genesis 12 through 50 is part 2. And Genesis 12 starts with the new creation. Who's the new creation? This time you've got a new man, Abraham. This time you've got a new nation, Israel. And this time you've got the promised seed going to be coming through Abraham, through the nation, you've got Jesus. And so you've got confusion and chaos and disorder at the end of chapter 11. and chapter 12, as we'll see, you've got the new birth. Which makes me think about a parable that Jesus gives at the end of the Sermon on the Mount about building. This whole, this whole chapter is about building. What are you building your life upon? What's your foundation? What are you building upon? Are you like Nimrod? Are you, are you rebellious and building upon your pride and your arrogance? Are you like the people in Babylon? Are, are you building upon your self-sufficiency, your man-made religion? Are you trying to make a name for yourself? What are you building your life upon? And Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, 24 through 27. This is how he ends the Sermon on the Mount. 
Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand And the rains fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell, and great was the fall of it. You notice how Jesus says, it's not just hearing these words, but what? Doing them. It's obedience to Christ. You see, we can come into a worship service like this and nod our heads and say, Amen, Sean. Love you, Sean. Love Jesus, Sean. Love what you're saying, Sean. Amen, Sean. And walk out and not be changed at all and not do anything about it. Are you building your life upon obedience? Jesus says, Blessed is the man who hears these words and does them. What does James say? Don't just be a hearer of the word, but be a doer also. It's 24-7. When you leave this place, it's not how you acted on Sunday morning. It's about how you live your life out in the world as an obedient child of Christ. And the only foundation that's ever going to last is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only foundation. When the winds come and the waves come and the things of life come, the only thing that's going to hold you on the solid rock is Christ. And so if you're here this morning and you've never placed your life upon the rock of Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you've never repented of your sin, you've never turned from your sin, you've never hated your sin, you've never looked into the face of a glorious Savior and bowed your knee to King Jesus and say, my life is yours, Jesus. I trust you. I surrender to you you, I submit to you, I give my life to you, then today is the day of salvation. What are you waiting for? Call upon the name of Jesus, the only rock that can save you. And the promise from Scripture is all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So call upon him today, the solid rock. So let me ask it again, one more time for the sake of repetition. Upon what? Are you building your life? What are you building your life upon? Time of examination. Am I building my life upon pride? Arrogance? Rebellion? Self-sufficiency? Man-made religion? Or am I building my life upon the solid rock of Jesus and living a life of worship and obedience to him? Is your life upon the solid rock of Jesus? Or is it upon the sinking sand of your own self-effort, pride, and independence? May God give us the strength to stand upon the solid rock of Jesus and worship him and obey him with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength to the glory of God. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And I want that question to continue to be ringing in your ears this morning. It's purposeful that I've asked it multiple, multiple times. You're building something. Everybody's building something in their lives. Everybody's building upon something. The question is what or whom? So in this moment of quiet and this time of prayer, would you ask the Lord... God, to search your heart that you may be able to clearly know upon what you're building your life. 
And if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ alone for salvation, you've never believed in him, you've never given your life to him, you've never trusted him, you've never repented of sins, use this opportunity to cry out to Jesus. Everything else in your life is sinking sand. It's not going to last. The only thing that's going to last, the only thing that's worth it, the only thing that's beautiful in this world is Christ as a solid rock. So would you cry out to him this morning? So spend this time in self-examination. Spend this time asking the Holy Spirit to reveal some things into your heart, asking the question upon what am I building my life? So let's spend some time in silent prayer this morning. Father, as we bow in your presence this morning, we want to be those that have our lives built upon the solid rock of Jesus. We don't want our lives to be built upon the shifting sand of pride, the shifting sand of arrogance, the shifting sand of rebellion, the shifting sand of self-made religion, the shifting sand of wanting to make a name for ourselves. We want to be those that are built upon the solid rock of Jesus. And Lord, as we have you as our rock, our refuge, our mighty God, may we live lives of worship and obedience. Jesus, it's easy to come into this room and worship and obey when we're surrounded by Christians. When we're led and worshiped by a praise team and when we have a pastor preaching the word to us, it's somewhat easy, Jesus, for us to worship and obey. It's when we leave these doors and go out into the real world where we find it much harder to worship and obey. And that's why we need the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives and our eyes to be fixed upon you. So Lord, would you encourage us? Would you empower us? Would you enable us? Would you do what you need to do, Lord, in our lives so that when we go out into the world this week, we live lives of worship. We live lives of obedience. We're built upon the solid rock of Jesus. And we, we don't build with shifting sand and, and these things that don't matter. So would you help us, Jesus, as we go from this place? Again, Lord, my prayer is if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, Jesus, personally as their Lord and Savior, that today would be their day of salvation. They would repent and believe and come to faith in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. After we